Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This is your co-host, DJ LeClear. And this is your co-host, Phil Ord. Warning, this podcast may challenge your views on environmentalism and push back on conventional environmental thought with science and data. We hope you approach with humanism and an open mind. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, A&E, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. So thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about the Green New Deal and my co-host, DJ LeClear, and our podcast producer, Jonah. She's not been on this podcast before, so I'll let her introduce herself. Yeah, hi, this is Jonna, and I am uh, a big-time advocate of nuclear energy. I believe that nuclear energy is the absolute best track for solving climate change and being the next generation of energy for the entire world economy. And I feel like we should also mention that uh, that you also you, you you do some recording for some music as well, right? That's right. I uh, have a SoundCloud and I produce music, write music. I work with uh, local artists. It's more of a hobby at this point, but maybe someday it will become something I get paid to do if I'm lucky. But if not, it's still fun. I'm, you know, definitely fascinated with the whole Green New Deal and the whole politics around it. I think in the pro-nuclear community, we're kind of frustrated. I know I am personally because nowhere in the Green New Deal does it specifically say nuclear energy is, you know, going to be even a part of it. There's some flirting with it when they use language like 100% carbon neutral, but it's it's definitely not able to cross over the line and say, hey, you know, we, we, we think nuclear energy should be a part of the solution. I've done a little bit of research on the Green New Deal because one thing that's maybe not quite genuine about it is that it's being portrayed as something that AOC had written, which is not exactly the case. Its origins date back to 2008. It was... Sorry to bother you, but can you explain who AOC is? Oh, uh, Cortez. I call her Cortez. The, the new... Andrea. The new uh, representative, you know, that's on the news every day now. Kind of the the darling of the left. She's the, she's the new star of the left, and I, they're they're kind of using her upward mobility in the the media landscape to tack on the Green New Deal. But the Green New Deal has its origins that go as far back in time as 2008, which is 11 years ago almost. Wow, I was not aware of that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was originally uh, written by a guy named Larry Elliott, and it was published in this thing called the New Economics Foundation. I'm just looking at the, the Wikipedia. I can read it. It says the Green New Deal was reported uh, to be released on 
July 21st, 2008, by the Green New Deal Group, published by the New Economics Foundation, which outlines a series of policy proposals to tackle global warming and the current financial crisis. At the time, there was the you know big housing crash and things like that, and what they were perceiving at the time is the peak oil boom um, decline. Peak oil means that they were thinking at the time that this was we're, we, we hit the maximum output for uh, crude oil worldwide. This is before fracking. This, yeah, I was about to say this was before fracking really really hit. The, the Green New Deal was completely focused on renewable energies as the cornerstone and alternative to fossil fuel. The problem with this whole narrative that pretty much the entire world, at least the, the side of the world that cares about climate change, is that it's, it's so in love with solar and wind and so closed off to any other option that they're not leaving any other option, I guess, is the problem. Yeah, and it's interesting because they're using a, you know, environmental issue that needs to be solved rapidly to propose kind of a big fix to society somehow. For example, of course, it's called the Green New Deal. It's modeled after FDR's New Deal, which was needed to lift a lot of people out of the Great Depression. And right now, there are economic issues, yes, but we aren't in a depression. And would a New Deal type, you know, jobs program be productive? Is it adding value to people's lives? Is it going to make us wealthy somehow? I'm skeptical of that. Yeah, it, basically, I mean, if it, most most people that are into economics right now would say that there's probably never been a time uh, in American history when the economy has been stronger. If you look over at the uh, fossil fuel industry right now in the United States, the fossil fuel industry has never been stronger, stronger as in output. The United States is now a net exporter of fossil fuel, liquid natural gas, and oil, and coal. And the reason, a big part of the reason why uh, this country is doing so well economically at this point is because the abundance of fossil fuel energy and it's cheap. It's kind of depressing to think about, actually. <laughs> well, the good news is this: make energy even cheaper than fossil fuel will ever hope to be. And that's with the incredible power of the atom, of course. Uh, Two million times more energy dense than the hydrocarbon bond, with zero of the emissions. I completely agree. And what's interesting is. I know this is a little bit of a sidetrack here, but the uh, nuclear industry as a whole, uh, they have goals of remove or of uh, reducing their their costs by 25, 30 percent. And they've, they've been actually quite successful um, in doing that. Just me, per- I, I personally work side by side with some of them and seeing that they, they have definitely reduced prices. So this could make it to where I, th- I think it, it pushes nuclear to be even cheaper because they need to compete with those cheap fossil fuels. Well, should we should we jump into some of the, the points of the draft legislation? Sounds good to me. Before we do, I'd kind of like to just point one other thing out. And I, sure. I think it's super important for anyone listening, is that the entire philosophy around solving climate change has only been focused on one part of our energy consumerism which is the electric grid, which is significant. It's nothing to discount. It's about 25% of our total energy usage, depending on how you, how you want to 
splice that out, but roughly around 25%. But what's frustrating to me is that by only focusing on the electric grid, you're completely ignoring the other 75% of, of the carbon footprint. So that would be basically transportation and industry. Yeah, and we kind of get into some of that. Uh, and especially for things like transportation, some of the ideas in the Green New Deal are kind of wild and really aren't they aren't realistic in in the least. But anyway, but yeah, the, basically the uh, entire legislation says we need to move away from, you know, a carbon based energy system with 100 percent, quotes, renewable energy. And they don't realize that that's really just for the electric grid, like wind and solar. I mean, how are you going to drive have a car with that? You know, we can go electric, but, you know, that's billions of cars we'd have to change over, you know. And they talk about the IPCC report that came out where they, you know, basically ask, we should try, probably try to have our global emissions by 2030, which is 12 years, and eventually get it to zero by 2050. And they say that this will help keep the average global temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, you know, I we definitely believe climate change is a huge issue. How do we know if that timeline's correct? I mean, is that even realistic? I'm just trying to be honest here. I, you know, I think we'll be lucky to, if we really try to get emissions to zero by 2100. I don't know what you guys think. Just thoughts on that. What, DJ, what do you think? So uh, recently, I think it was, was it Ben Hurd uh, that came out with a article recently. Um, Can you describe who Ben Hurd is again? Ah, yes. Ben Hurd. He's from Australia. He is a big advocate for advocate for nuclear energy and um, the eco-modernism uh, philosophy, which I, we won't get too in deep or deep in what that is. But he was talking about the deadline fallacy, which it, I I actually I, I really do think it is very important that we decarbonize as, as fast as possible. And um, a lot of people, they, they give that whole deadline thing and say, hey, we can't do nuclear plants. Look at – and then they, they cherry pick specific ones that have taken a long time to build and say, look, it takes 15 years to build a nuclear plant, which is, is completely false. But um, they try to put that deadline on there, and it just makes people think, oh, well, we can't do nuclear because it takes too long to make that 12-year – half of or half of our emissions gone thing but actually nuclear has been proven to uh, decarbonize quite quickly oh sorry i was gonna say if listeners want an example you look at france france decarbonized their entire electric sector you know up to about 90 percent in less than 30 years with nuclear power and hydro oh, so. much less than that one thing in defense of the Green New Deal uh, in in, relation, in relation to, to France is that when France did that, they didn't do it with private investors. That was completely a government-led effort to build out their electric grid on nuclear energy. It was just a mass mobilization of of intense amounts of government public money. and private money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there was there was an intense amount of uh, government leadership involved in that. So, are you saying, uh, in defense of the Green New Deal, that it would need we, we do need something like that in order? Or is that kind of what you're? We're we're actually going to talk later on about our idea of what a good Green New Deal is. But is that kind of what you're saying? Ideally, some reactor comes out 
that's just such a uh, an amazing money maker uh, that everyone wants a piece of, but realistically, that's probably not going to happen, at least not at first. And if we can offload some of the risk investment onto the government, uh, it would definitely accelerate, you know, the expansion of new nuclear technology. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be great if the of the public sector, aka the government, could help with the R&D so we can get these reactor costs very low and very safe. So there's no reason why people would burn coal anymore, right? Every, economics drives everything. Right. No one likes to deal with this reality. Uh, going to buy gas and you've got a choice of four gas stations and they're all pretty much just as easy to get to, chances are you're going to pick the one that charges the least amount. That's just... So common sense. This has got me thinking. Right now, like I don't know if you've noticed, but there's windmills everywhere. There's solar being built everywhere, which many people will point out the 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 mass so-called investment in massive amounts of wind and solar. Uh, in in my opinion, or not even my opinion, like the the facts show that the the government's actually kind of leading that when it comes to uh, subsidies and everything. So it really gives incentive for, for utilities to build those things. I'm curious on what happens if we were doing the same thing, except for also including nuclear in that. Would we see massive investment uh, towards nuclear? Yeah, and I, and I want, let's, let's move on just a little bit. The frequently asked questions of the Green New Deal that put out, you know, one of the questions was, is nuclear going to be part of this? And they pretty much dismiss it and say, we'd like to get rid of it. We'd like to, if we can, close them down. But if we can't, then I guess it'll just, we'll move that down the road. But it, it, it says adding more nuclear to the conversation isn't, isn't part of the strategy. And that just makes zero sense to me because two-thirds of our carbon-free electricity in the United States is nuclear. If we get rid of that, place to try to rip wind and solar, which will be a lot harder to do because it's intermittent, how is that a climate strategy in the least? Well, it's a totally terrible strategy. Number one, another thing that people are not conscious of at this point, the, the hamburger meme kind of alludes to it. Could, sorry, can you explain what that is? The argument is, you know, don't eat beef because there's a huge carbon footprint in the beef. And that's fine. If you don't want to eat beef, don't eat beef. But you're also ignoring the bun. You're ignoring the tomato. You're ignoring the mayonnaise, lettuce. Sure, maybe per pound or whatever, it has a lower carbon footprint, but it has a carbon footprint. You know, if you take that bun and you break down all the ingredients, you've got flour, salt, probably bacon, soda, eggs, etc. You take one ingredient like flour well, that flower has a carbon footprint. That, that flower started as a piece of wheat in a field. That a tractor driving, you know, on you know, on gas, powered on gas, harvested the wheat, put it into this big bin, and then they truck it off, and then they behind every consumer good. There's just mass quantities of energy behind it because of the global economic system. So. Ditching the burger uh, or the beef in the burger for some other substitute, you're you're only shaving a small percentage of your carbon footprint. So I think what pe people are aware that they create a carbon footprint when they get in their car and they drive, when they jump on an airplane and fly somewhere, uh, or when they turn on a light switch. But they don't think they don't think, hey, I'm creating a carbon footprint when they go buy a new TV. They don't think, hey, I'm generating a carbon footprint just making dinner. 
which is why it's it's so important that we actually replace our fossil fuel with a affordable carbon-free source. And because that way you can power all of these things without emitting greenhouse gas. And the other thing too that no one's really putting into their climate change calculator is that when you start, I mean, if we're talking about building billions and billions of dollars worth of hardware, solar panels, windmills, that's a carbon footprint investment we're making. So, you know, if you, if you want to build a, a wind turbine, has anybody ever seen like a full-size wind turbine in real life or even just like a component of it? Gosh, freaking huge. They're amazingly huge. Like the, just one blade has to go on this like very long truck. And they just, they, I mean, there's a huge amount of steel going into this stuff. And I mean, the, the carbon behind all, all these goods could, we, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about that for sure. But the bottom line is that, you know, so it's, it's kind of like digging a hole when somebody's standing at the top of the hole with a shovel throwing dirt back into the hole that you're, you're kind of working against yourself. And that's kind of what we're doing with, with this idea of this like multi billion, even trillion dollar. Uh, solar wind build out is like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna stop cl- uh, climate change by reducing our carbon footprint. But first, we're gonna create a, a huge carbon footprint. Exactly, because you need the fossil fuel to build the renewables. Right. So, and then you you know the, and then you know you have to factor that into your uh, if you want to put a carbon tax, you want to raise the, the price of fossil fuel. Well, guess what? You're going to raise the price of the manufacturing of your your solar and your and your windmills. Unless, of course, you offshore your manufacturing to a place like China. Let me move to another part of it. And this has gotten a lot of laughs in the media about ending air travel or trying to build up high-speed rail so we don't have to fly in airplanes anymore. And, you know, I mean, that sounds reasonable, but if you get down and think about it, trains at best go, I, I mean, what the best in Japan goes 300 kilometers an hour, and that's the best one they have. And we're thinking we're going to do that for all over the United States when you can jump on an airplane and go 600 miles an hour. It's just absurd to think that we are going to stop using airplanes or jet travel because it's 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 fast and cheap and to be honest america is pretty sparsely populated for having 300 million people that it, it, it makes no sense to have these long distance rail lines that works better in places like europe where cities aren't that far apart and uh you know how are we going to electrify that so uh, i don't know dj do you have any thoughts on that <laughs> the whole fact that this is all very very unrealistic and, and pie in the sky. I know, I know that's been used a lot out there, uh, but really is because they've added in so many other things besides just um, doing uh, what's it called your your high speed trains and everything, which everything everything sounds so rainbows and unicorns. Um, they're, they're trying to fix everything in one thing, uh, such as yeah, giving jobs to everybody, even though we have really low unemployment. Not to say that everybody's getting paid very well but there's plenty of jobs right now and they're they're really looking to fix social issues and it's there's a lot of language in there that it's it's just and it's very partisan too so it makes me feel like it's kind of a unrealistic like they don't really want to fix um 
climate change and fix our emissions problem is kind of the feeling that I get from it. I don't know about you all, what you all think about that, but it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like a serious thing. I, I, a fix for climate change is not going to be it should it should only be focused on the actual technology and how the technology is going to uh, affect the economy. I mean, really, it's almost like they put the cart in front of the horse. Like I want to. I just want to mention that there is a way to decarbonize air travel, and that's called synthetic fuel with a high energy source of power like nuclear. That's carbon free. You can actually undo the combustion reaction of jet fuel and essentially pull the carbon dioxide out of the air and mix that with hydrogen, and it produces, you know, jet fuel and, and oxygen as a byproduct. And if people we, want to look back in our in our archives. We had a nice podcast exactly on this. Just exactly, a little plug there. Exactly. So so we can decarbonize things like jet travel. Going backwards and saying we need to reduce it is. That's that's not. But yeah, that's all I wanted to say. But John, I'll let you. I, I really just feel it's unfortunate that something as important as climate change has been so heavily politicized on both sides. A big part of the problem has been, you know, from climate change denial. And it's it's like we can't even begin to approach on a national level how to solve a problem, you know, until we first acknowledge that there is a problem. So we're starting to see a shift on the right where they're slowly starting to acknowledge that this is a real problem. I think it's probably because there's more and increasingly scary signs. And if anybody isn't highly concerned or downright scared right now, they're not paying attention. Anybody who's really paying attention to the to what's happening in the, in, in, in terms of climate uh, you should be freaking out. Every year being hotter than the last is is a very bad omen, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, people will say, oh, well, we're getting these polar vortexes and stuff. Well, on average, the climate globally is getting warmer and all that. Polar vortex issue is a destabilization of the jet stream in the Arctic. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody comes up and smacks your hat off your hat you know just goes flying off in some place where it doesn't belong it belongs in your head and, and that cold air is kind of like earth's hat yep. and there's a bunch of hot air you know rushing up to the arctic and it's kind of throwing the whole thing off balance it's, it's spreading the cold air all over the place but it's also what the, it's also telling us is that there's more warm air up in the arctic when this where it, cold air isn't where it's supposed to be and this science is the should be the root of the discussion but in, in this Green New Deal legislation, they're saying we need to give everyone a livable wage. I, I agree event, I agree we need that, but they want to fix wage stagnation. Well, I don't really know what that has to do with the polar vortex. And they say fix income inequality for every demographic and, you know, make sure there aren't any pay disparities. Again, I don't know what that has to do with the parts per million of carbon dioxide that's shooting up. And I mean, sorry to be a little bit kind of sarcastic here. They, they even say things like reconcile and fix all past, current, and future oppression. You know, I, I'm all about trying to alleviate some of the you know major social issues of the day, but emissions are the priority. That's just what I think. Some perspective. I, th- I think most Americans, you know, they, they, there's a lot of language that revolves around the, the idea of privilege, but with most Americans don't realize 
is that just being an American is in a way sort of a privilege. If you make more than $25,000 a year, you are in the upper 4% of the world population in terms of wealth. I mean, just think about that for a second. If you make $25,000, that's poverty level in the United States. That's what you basically consider the poverty line is right around there. But if you're at 25,000, you're actually richer than 96% of the rest of the world population. The reason why the United States is more wealthy than most other countries in the world is our ability to consume energy. There is a direct correlation between how much energy a country consumes and how wealthy it is. And if you really think about it, it's not too hard to figure out why. If you want to go to a hospital, that hospital didn't just magically appear. It was built with machines, and those machines run on energy. And the more expensive the energy is, the more expensive it is to build the machines to build hospitals, and the more expensive it is to build the hospital. Everything relates to the cost of energy. So when their idea says, hey, let's raise the cost of energy, and we want all this extra stuff, you're kind of like, pulling the economy in two separate directions. You're, you're telling everybody that we need to work with less less energy and somehow get more out of it. So I think the secret sauce here, again, is if, if you want more stuff, more wealth in, in our economy, because everything costs something, education costs something, healthcare costs something, we have to have a way to pay for it. We get more money by simply getting more energy into the country. Yeah, and this is a Actually, a pretty good segue into kind of one of the other points of the Green New Deal. It's you bring up a good point. People assume that, okay, well, maybe make electricity or energy more scarce, and then that'll lead us to use less fossil fuel. And a way to do that is kind of absorb those costs is to increase your efficiency. Uh, and interestingly enough, or in most climate policies, energy efficiency is a key part of it. And I, I tend to agree. Um, not wasting energy is certainly important, but it's not going to be, it, it's, we're talking, inter, you know, small percentages. Green New Deal asks to literally upgrade every single building with state-of-the-art efficiency. And, you know, honestly, efficiency, DJ, you'd agree, it's, efficiency is just part of the, part of the game. It's, everyone wants to save money, right? A- absolutely. Like, I'm all for energy efficiency. Like, I, I don't want to be, you know, throwing my money out the window because of all that heat that I'm wasting. Um, so, I mean, en- energy efficiency is, is great because I just, I want to save money. But you know what I'm going to do with that money when I save it? I'm going to go spend it. Just like Jonna said, I'm going to go spend it on a TV. I'm going to spend it on finally taking a vacation with my wife to the Caribbean or something. It, it All of those things that I'm... Um, I'm saving my money on on energy efficiency, but I'm going to go. Sp- I'm going to spend it somewhere else, and I'm going to use energy, and uh, that gets us into uh, Jevon's paradox, which you you're you're saving or you're you're being more efficient um, can actually um, lead to you just shifting. You, where you're 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 making that carbon footprint, and in, in some cases can have a backfire effect where it makes things even worse um, because you saved money on e- energy, and now you're going to go spend money on a vacation, maybe a little more money than you saved on the energy efficiency. And it's not just vacations; that's just an example. But and yeah, and the the jet fuel from that vacation could offset uh, an an entire year of 
energy savings. And, and there's just an upper limit to how much you can do. And really, it's goes back to we just need to clean up our power um, and well let me just go talk about Javon's paradox really quick and or economic economic realities but the more the more you save energy the more uses you have for it and we if we aren't gonna if we're gonna be more efficient that just opens up for us to splurge on other things like you know like DJ said new new items and so it's kind of a kind of a paradox where how much energy we use really it's the problem is, where we get our energy from uh, and basically says is for some things, the more you use some, the more you save something, the more you can end up, you know, consuming with it. If that makes sense to people listening. Also with, uh, with that same paradox, let's say for example, uh, the United States instituted a 25% tax on fossil fuel and the economy, you know, the economists here can look at this and go, oh, look, we've reduced our fossil fuel because we've artificially raised the price of it. The problem with this is that we operate in a global market. So if we're, if we're artificially raising the price of energy here in this country, all you're going to do is open up the market in a different part of the world that's developing where they don't have those taxes. Yeah. Have you, have you heard of the idea of innovating to zero? DJ, have you heard of that? I have not. But it's basically the idea idea that we must get clean energy, zero emissions. We must get the price down to that of below coal, because otherwise, like Jana says, a developing country is going to do whatever's cheapest. And that's their right, because they need to leave poverty and they need access to energy however they can get it. So, you know, maybe a carbon, carbon tax might work in a developed country, but, you know, that could just pass the carbon emissions onto the developing countries. So just just wanted to say that. But uh, do you guys want to get into kind of the stuff they say about agriculture? Or absolutely. Let's see here. Oh yes, it talks about uh, beef and cattle reducing our emissions from that. Actually, Phil, I want to I want to kind of push back. I think you might be actually able to talk about this a, a little better than me. All right. Yeah. So I did a paper in college about climate change uh, and a class about climate change. And they were, I've always been hearing that like beef has a big carbon footprint and I wanted to look at why and some evidence behind it. And it's because the cow's digestive system is, it's called a uh, a ruminant system. And in order to glean calories from the grass, which humans can't digest very well because it's made out of this stuff called cellulose, uh, they need to use bacteria to ferment the the grass or the grains and part of that fermentation pro, part of that fermentation process produces methane or we also call natural gas and it's real it's literally the burps not the farts the burps of cows that can yeah that can actually you know it does increase your carbon emissions because um, methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than than uh, carbon dioxide. So when she says, oh, we need to limit cow farts, or not, when the Green New Deal, New Deal literally talks about cow farts, they're, they're, not, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. And uh, honestly, if you look at the profiles of different sources of protein, you know, uh, beef is sky high when it comes to, you know, the amount of feed you need to use and the amount of uh, methane the cows produce. If you just switch to I think I, in this paper I wrote back in the day, it's like if you switch to just pork, you could like, you could like 
your carbon emissions would be like one sixth in in life cycle assessment of beef. So honestly, I think we should perhaps look to a a potential pollution fee on beef uh, because there's plenty of other great meats out there, and you know if beef is the one that's causing such a environmental issue, I mean we somehow need to penalize that. That's just my opinion. And Have you heard any difference between the, the methane release from cattle feed versus green grass? Uh, it's essentially the same. Okay. Uh, they use grain just because it's it's easier to grow right? and transport. Uh, I mean, cows will eat hay too, but I'm not sure why they use corn. I think it's just because Corn's it's just easy. more calories per unit. It's per, more calories per unit, but but still, Maybe they can. Maybe listening yeah. here, they could they could correct us on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm no expert. It's just should we talk about how, John? You might like to talk about this, but because you talk about kind of global energy uses, but it talks about using going to like local production of of food to limit carbon emissions. Can you perhaps explain what? The fallacy is in that. Yeah, I mean, everybody hates it. Everyone would hate it. Um, I live in Oregon, which is a, a great agricultural area. We've got a lot of potatoes and nuts, and there's some other bumper crops. Apples is really big here. So those are all great, but, you know, everyone loves a banana. People love their, their fruits from around the world, and so... And I, if I couldn't give my kids bananas, oh, my gosh. I think it's a lot easier said than done just to stick with uh, local only, you know, until they come up with some sort of super amazing way to do indoor agriculture uh, on a scale that's, you know, where you're able to feed millions of people. Um, you know, it's. And, and in places that have harsh winters, are we going to go back to the, the old days where we pickle our vegetables and just try to survive off of you know, dried foodstuffs. No, people people want their fresh salad. You know, that might have to come from Chile or Israel. And it, it, all these different foods are from all over the earth, and you need these supply chains. And to say, oh, we need local food production instead, well, that's going to actually increase costs. That might actually uh, increase emissions in some ways because it might be cheaper to buy something wholesale from one part of the world than to grow more of it where you live. It's it's a very complicated system. And the idea of, oh, we'll just, we'll just go back to kind of communal gardening for sustenance is, it's it's just, again, it's not, it's not based in... realistic. Right. I mean, if, if we want to just kind of go down that road the whole way of let's just do less of everything... You know, we we would literally just have to go back to like the dark ages. So we would have to accept that. Um, definitely, kiss free healthcare goodbye. Get rid of the whole idea of you know having public education. Um, if we're going to shrink our economy, get used to not having jobs and just eating dirt. And we'll just go back, you know, to subsistence. We'll just go back to the dark ages, you know, which we'll some people ride horses around was and better. 
because it because it was more natural. When you get a disease, we'll just you'll just you know suck it up. You know, when you're 35, you're old. <laughs> we don't realize how amazing our lives are until until it's gone because of like, energy. Wants, yeah, yeah. Who wants to go chop wood to heat their house? That's backbreaking and terrible. And I would much rather live in a you. world where. You know, hey, let's go have lunch in Paris and then dinner right. in Tokyo the, because, yeah. you know, and, and literally the, 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 the trip like takes like a half hour to get to Paris because you're skipping through, you know, outer space to get there. Um, if, right. if we want to get to the next, you know, the, the next level of society, uh, we, we can't be looking towards the past for answers. We have to look towards the future. And, you know, clearly, uh, because of physics, you know, nuclear is the future of the economy. It's just a matter of how we get there. Just based on the simple energy density alone. 200 years from now, if if there are survivors, they're going to be, they're going to be surviving on nuclear energy, where whoever they are. For sure. Survivors. They're, they're the only survivors. <laughs> in my Just in an underground, uh, underground nuclear facility that can survive the absolute Martian conditions. Yeah, I really I think know. we should do another episode just on Hot House Earth. No, right? Just kind of the the potential bad places things can go if we aren't careful. Uh, just one last thing about agriculture. Uh, a lot of there is a documentary called Cowspiracy Everyone Talks About. And it talks about how animal agriculture is a large carbon footprint, and that's very much true. But sometimes they're a little bit sneaky about it because they group in uh, like land use change, like cutting down trees for pasture land, and that's not necessarily the animals doing it. And plus, eventually, that'll kind of tap out once populations start decreasing again, which they're projected to. Uh, but they also group in the transport fuel, uh, like the gasoline and the diesel and the, you know, the fuel for the combines and the farm equipment. And that would be very hard to electrify. Uh, I can't imagine a battery powered combine that could plow a field all day, every day for, you know, two weeks of harvest. And, uh, Again, back to the synthetic fuel thing, we can we can decarbonize the fuel for these machines. And again, I, I'm very passionate about synthetic fuel, but Me I too. just thought I'd mention that. And uh, let's just not also forget that genetic modification can also decrease the carbon footprint of these crops because you don't have to turn the fields as much. You know, you don't have to weed as much and they can use less water and less fertilizer it's it's amazing what gmos can do to less pesticides yeah yeah exactly uh, yeah they, they have already from producing crops you know. just per unit well do you want to talk about the cost dj yeah yeah so one thing that it mentions having more jobs right <laughs> when when you're trying to tra- you don't want to transition into an energy system that requires more jobs 
because if it's using more jobs, that means it's way more expensive. And the estimates have come out for the, by the way, expenses, uh, $51 trillion to $97 trillion for the Green New Deal. As it stands um, now. As it stands now, yes. My, I, I remember my dad, he came up with the analogy of it's like uh, you have this money and you're just paying people to dig a hole and put the dirt in a pile and then you have other people take that dirt and fill that hole back in. Basically, you're just using a bunch of people and you're 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 just increasing costs yet you're not really any anything useful because uh you could instead invest those or invest in say nuclear energy which is a significantly uh lower price uh, i've seen more like 4 trillion to i want to say just less than 10 um for completely going nuclear instead so it's it's like do we do we try to uh go the uh green new deal route and maybe create a bunch of jobs but why um we're we're just increasing the cost and we've we obviously we talked about this earlier john was talking about it increasing costs is not good if you guys want to know where we got some of those figures that 51 trillion to 97 trillion mm -hmm. was in fortune magazine uh, and it's from a center-right policy think tank called American Action Forum. And I looked up a source watch, and uh, it said it was, they were pretty factual. So uh, don't take our word for that and look it up. And uh, the nuclear grid uh, cost, which was, I think, between 3 to three to $9 trillion, depending on how cheap nuclear you can get it. Uh, and with new technology, that was done by my, my friend Mike Conley, and Tim Maloney uh, to progressive uh, pro-nuclear advocates and engineers, and they uh, kind of pieced together a, a a nuclear transformation in their book called Roadmap to Nowhere. I suggest you guys, uh, those listening, check it out. It's free online, uh, and they do a great job. Just just saying. And, and and one last thing about the jobs issue. I mean, throughout history, like in the old days, you would have a lot of people working on energy production, like. Imagine all the labor you would need to collect firewood and bring it into town to to run your smelter, stuff like that. And throughout history, our basic necessities, our basic necessities are taking less and less people to provide as technology increases. Like an example would be most of the agricultural revolution, 90 to 95 percent of all people just toiled on the land. In the United States, the amount of farmers is one to two percent. I think it's even. Actually, I think it's less than one percent, uh, and that's exactly how energy is going to go. We have we have these centralized power plants that can burn gas and coal and take only a few employees. And ironically, we want to have less jobs for energy and not more to make the economy more more sound. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive. You know. Well, these are also, I mean, the renewable economy job fantasy is there are a bunch of crappy jobs i've met i've i've met somebody who actually goes out and services windmills he go he's he gets paid to you know go around to the different areas of the country and do this and uh it's dangerous you have to drive up to the base of it and there's a little door and then you crawl inside and you get inside you've got this ladder 
that you have 40 to, minute walk up. Yeah. And, and you have to uh, clip in. So every time you, you got to step up and clip in, but they're also put on a time schedule. So they, you know, they have a certain number that they're supposed to hit in a certain day. <clears throat> so what a lot of them end up doing is not clipping in. They're just like, I'm just going to charge up this thing. So uh, it's very common in this industry that people come tumbling down that ladder full force. And they hit the, the, they hit the bottom and they're dead. Ironically, both wind and solar are more dangerous than nuclear. Right. So, I mean, the, the idea that we're going to make this like the number one job in America of crawling up these crappy ladders and somehow that's a good thing, that's a terrible thing. Another job that will be needed is someone to go out there and uh, literally wipe solar panels down. You've got dust that collects. For those that I've heard, they even have to use uh, distilled water or what they call deionized water to rinse these things off because – if you have hard water buildup, it can decrease your efficiencies, you know, noticeably of your solar panels. Solar panels only work work optimally when there's not a cloud in the sky, the sun's directly overhead, and uh, the solar panels are crystal clean. You see some of these solar rays in the desert covered with dust on pictures and stuff. Those solar panels like that are producing no electricity. It, it drops off dramatically. Mm-hmm. So uh, s- solar panels, people think it's the panacea uh, of energy, but they're 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 really crappy, and sunlight's relatively dilute. You know. Yeah, solar and wind are just so completely oversold. I mean, it's not going to solve climate change. It's not even going to breach the the growth demand for energy worldwide. So if we, what I'm saying is, if if we add, let's say, five percent more. Uh, solar and wind renewable energy to our grid that's it's not even going to come close to the amount of energy demand that's increasing every single year so if we can add five here in this country worldwide it's the energy demand is going to be more than that that amount so it's 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 not even a, a real plan to keep things as bad as they are now like with things are still going to get worse and worse and worse. It's it's such a horrible plan to solve climate change. And I think people have just been lied to. It, I mean, at this point, it's hard for me to look at all of these extremely smart world leaders all over the world who all seem to fully buy in to this idea that solar and wind are going to solve climate change when it's so obvious that it won't. Make a disclaimer that I'm not... We aren't anti-solar and wind. We're anti-solutions sure. that just aren't that aren't actually Art making solutions. a difference. Yeah, right. And 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 you know, uh, in my perfect world, and I, you know, we'll, this is kind of our last talking point where we're gonna we're all gonna share what we think is the best way to do it. You know, uh, wind and solar need to compete in the price per unit energy produced with zero emissions and. If if that's how we regulated or added value to our energy system based on the actual, you know, emissions avoided per technology, nuclear would win. It just would. Wind and solar just I, I would be outcompeted. And I mean, I, I'm not saying those technologies aren't valid in certain applications, but that's we can't just say, oh, 
we want it because it sounds good. It needs to actually produce the results we need. If you know, I know I get a little bit passionate about that, but we aren't necessarily anti-renewables, but we are very skeptical of the role they'll play. I, I look at it like this: you know, if you have two employees, right, or two people who are hiring in for a position, let's just say, for example, that they're both equally potentially good at this job but the one it wants four times the salary of the other i mean obviously the cheaper one is going to be the, the better deal but then when you compound that with the, the one wants four times as much and wants to do a quarter of the work that the other one can do all the work for a, a cheaper amount i mean that's obviously the one that you want to hire and that's kind of the difference in these technologies. Wind and solar, I mean, solar does not work at night. A lot of people really don't understand that. They truly don't. I've spoken with so many on the internet, it's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's, it's genuinely a, a news thing to them. Like, they, they really don't understand that solar panels don't work when it's dark out or when there's a shade or a shadow over it. Like, that's news to them. So, I mean, that's the kind of what we're dealing with out in the general public. And then people think, well, let's just get batteries. Okay, there's another The battery huge, fallacy. The battery fallacy. There, there are no batteries that are big enough. The, a, a city is not your cell phone. It's Exactly. It's, a uh, cell phone is a very low-voltage thing. It's completely designed to, to work on the minimum amount of electricity so it can fit into your pocket. That's not going to... And storing energy is very difficult. It's, it, it has to do with just, just physics because every time you, you know, change the energy from one form to another, you will always lose a significant percentage of it in terms of heat loss, and that's what we call thermodynamics. And yeah, yeah, definitely, um, especially um, when you're converting between electrical energy and chemical engine energy when you're, when you're talking about uh, the batteries that would be used for uh, solar and wind. Um, and then uh, it, it's better if, if maybe you had something that was thermal and, and in keeping it as thermal energy. It takes like 10 watts of power out of your wall to charge a, a cell phone roughly, and then your the phone actually holds about a half a watt. That's what, how lithium-ion works for your cell phone. It takes well, about... It doesn't, it doesn't hold a watt. It would hold a, a half a watt. It hour. holds about a half a watt, but it takes about 10 to charge it. So that means that you're losing a significant amount to heat. Do you mean, do you mean watt hours? Sorry, yes, just watt a hours. minor correction there. <laughs> Yeah, um, and basically, it's it's best to use energy when you produce it, and that's what's good about nuclear and, unfortunately, fossil fuels is mm-hmm. you can turn them on when you want them. And there's no other technology we have that can do that except hydro if you have enough in your reservoir. But sometimes, especially with the climate variations that we're going to face, we might not have access to to water anytime we want. Um, so uh, we can't talk to Maybe talk a little bit too much about this, but uh, but back to kind of the cost issue, you know, I, I think one regulation that might work, even though it would be politically bad and or politically hard to do, and it would probably outsource carbon production, carbon emissions to other countries, but it's called a carbon fee. Uh, basically, the idea is that we have a slowly increasing 
very slowly increasing price on carbon that you would then take that revenue and give back to everybody in a dividend. And uh, basically, energy generators could look into the future and be like, okay, it's going to get very expensive if we keep burning our fossil plants. Maybe we should move to a cheaper option. And I don't know what, what you guys think about that, but that's kind of what a lot of the climate scientists think we should do. And there's already a gasoline tax. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a tax on LNG and I don't, I'm not sure about coal, but there's also a, a, there's also taxes when you pump it out of the ground for, for all the above. The government already charges that. And then things get a little bit murky when they start drilling on public land. It's like, well, because uh, they're supposed to pay into the public coffers when they're, you know, dipping into public uh so they're supposed to be charged a certain amount, and then I think that's where the things get fuzzy with the whole, what do you call it, the subsidies. Yes. Oh, so right. that's some things that they – so some of those discounts are considered subsidies. Uh, so it is a little bit complicated because you're getting into this like accounting stuff. But the fact of the matter is that we already do tax our carbon. I'm not completely opposed to – adding a little bit more, but there is a danger to adding too much because then you start to hurt the overall economy and there's no way we're going to tackle climate change with a weak economy. It's just not going to work. Right. We have to be pretty careful with the economic issues because a lot of, if you increase the price of energy, you can really do some damage to to the economy. So you have to be pretty careful. So, I mean, a lot of us nuclear folks believe that we're just going to have to try to innovate our way out of this. Uh, but let's kind of wrap up here and uh, let's, we'll just go around and let's, let's all share what we think would be a, you know, a better green new deal or a better plan or a green nuclear deal, if you will. Uh, DJ, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, I know people are, are talking about like, it needs to be big, right? Uh, because, so far, we're just we're not going, we're not getting anywhere, right? Um, so, I, in my opinion, like a a good new green deal would be one where uh, we're going kind of like a like the Apollo moonshot. That's that's kind of been used a lot, but um, for one thing, you you you're kind of creating a task force that you're you're digging into the real science, the knots politicized stuff and you're you're actually like bringing in experts on energy economics you bring in experts on um do synthesized fuel that's uh essentially uh zero emissions or, or low emissions and and you you bring in everybody together and kind of try getting that that apollo moonshot or i i, I like to think about like the manhattan project where they brought in uh, experts um, and basically just made it happen. Uh, I, I know that's probably not a, a wise thing to talk about, but um, or to, just, to yeah. allude to. But um, yeah, just, just yeah, an, an army bring, of experts. Yeah, and people that are, are are not just have that that partisan political thing, but people who want to actually solve it 
and and aren't led by ideology and just get the science like make a make a deal that sure you can leave it um this is my opinion you could leave it uh to be uh neutral when it comes to where the energy comes from as long as it's clean energy um and And obviously stay focused on the energy yes and safe and bring in bring in the experts to figure it all out for you but basically set that into motion is kind of that's that's my thought about it so i've become more fascinated with just kind of market mechanisms and i i do think a way out of this mess is to compete our way out and i you know that's why i I think the only way to do this is some sort of, if the government was to do anything, which is hard to get the government to do something, let alone the right thing that works, uh, is the carbon fee and dividend. Is you would just, you would slowly ratchet up the cost of, of polluting carbon dioxide because you shouldn't be able to, to pollute, for free. It's it, that's everyone else's space, and that's you know that violates other people's rights. And the idea is, my mind, we would get rid of all the subsidies of power, even for nuclear, even for fossil fuels, and even for renewables. And we would get rid of all the tax credits, you know, no government money to give you a free, you know, free money to a Tesla, uh, which I think is fairly unfair. And, you know, get rid of these, quotes renewable mandates that blatantly exclude technology like nuclear and car- potential carbon capture. It's if you get rid of all of those things, you set a floor, and then if you institute that carbon fee and dividend, it would then basically cause a technological race. And whoever can find the cheapest, safest, and most abundant carbon-free power would win. And nuclear power checks every single one of those boxes. And I think it would come out as as the winner. I think, I honestly think it would make it so wind and solar are just not worth our time. But, you know, that's my bias. That's how I think we can solve it. And I think the, it's, it's going to take a technological arms race to get, again, the innovate to zero, get the cost below that of coal. So all other countries will use it by default because it makes no sense to spend extra money. But that's kind of my thing. But I like DJ's idea where it's like, get a get a huge team of people that just says, you guys figure out how to decarbonize everything and come up with a plan. That's my two cents anyway. I would, I would definitely like the, the Manhattan-style ambition, but I think, I think the, the, there's already some good plans on the drawing board. and the, We already have good plans that are uh, being funded by the government. Uh, Lysium comes to mind. I really like that reactor because it's kind of like a garbage disposal for nuclear waste. Pretty much you can throw anything into it. And I'm pretty sure, it could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's mass producible. But it's critical that we come up with a reactor design, it's mass producible, and government fund it. Safe. And get these things pumping out on an assembly line as quickly as possible and and distributed all over the United States. And then once the government makes that investment, sets the ball rolling, then they can privatize it at that point. They can sell it off to investors. They can walk away from it. So I I think the government should should build a a huge 
nuclear infrastructure and then sell it off to the, the public. And then hopefully we can even make a little bit of money and then pay down some of our debt. But that's going beyond the real focus here. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think the government should just go completely bonkers. And then if anybody wants to make solar panels and windmills off of nuclear energy, go for it. Because you, you, it's, it's actually going to be a zero carbon uh, technology at that point. But until you're, yeah, until you're manufacturing solar and wind off of nuclear energy, uh, you're just creating more of a problem. And any of this other stuff is just adding more to the climate change issue. We need to get back to this critical analysis, you know, cost-benefit analysis and critical thinking and the scientific method to get us out of this this existential threat we're facing. Because honestly, I view it as like an asteroid heading towards us. And, you know, things can get very, very ugly if we don't do things exactly right. So, you know, ideology needs to go out the window. Uh, tribalism needs to go out the window. Uh, we need to cooperate and we need to come up with leave all ideas on the table. We need to think of climate change like it's the... Like it's a yeah, an alien invasion or an asteroid or uh, you know World War Two. It's time to to buck up and really take this thing seriously because if it if we don't, it's going to get so sad. Anything else you want to say, DJ? Or it's funny in, in my mind. I'm thinking about the Independence Day speech. It's it's time to <laughs> right. put put aside our differences. <laughs> we need to I, deple- I, I, declare our independence from fossil fuels. Well, the, I mean, the big problem, though, is fear. So um, I think it's as this podcast goes on, I think we really need to work hard to get people to understand some of the nitty-gritty details on the safety aspects and, and why if fear of nuclear energy is irrational, but that should be a different show. Right, yeah, Absolutely. the the benefits of nuclear power and the misconceptions of it can be an entire show and you know if safety stats on nuclear and pollution stats on it and it's it's the best we can possibly get honestly. But and I think we we actually touched on a lot of things that are definitely we get a lot of reaction which I would love to have podcasts on those reactions, those specific reactions. So if people have questions about that, they should they should definitely write in to us and leave comments and we, and please, we can address them. And please, any expert that knows more than we do, tell us if we've made any mistakes. We, you know, we're all imperfect and we're just we're just trying to put our minds together and solve this problem. Yeah, we're all Absolutely. here just to get a climate fix. Well, thank you all for joining us in this episode. You can support us and our mission online at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some A&E swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees to keep our organization running. We are a group of almost 10 volunteers at the moment. If you want to support this podcast specifically, you can donate on a per episode basis at patreon.com link in the description you can follow us on facebook twitter instagram tumblr and youtube lastly we really want your feedback let us know your thoughts questions and concerns we have a message form on our website under the about section or you can email us directly at main at americans for nuclear energy 
alloneword.org. Awesome. Well, thank you all for tuning in to this episode again. Uh, the next podcast hopefully should come out sometime at the end of this month. This is Phil Ord and DJ LeClear of A&E's Climate Fix Podcast. We'll see you next time.